We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're joined by Federalist senior contributor Benjamin Weingarten. He's also the deputy editor of Real Clear Investigations. You can subscribe to his Substack at weingarten.substack.com. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Emily, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, we played on Monday's show audio of Molly Hemingway, our editor-in-chief, reacting on Sunday morning to news that broke broke over the weekend um, from a court filing that special counsel John Durham made. Um, and, And Molly said that Donald Trump is right to consider this worse than Watergate, more severe than Watergate. The revelation from this filing, of course, in addition to all of the information that it comes on top of. Um, And I think it's incredibly difficult to disagree with Molly's assessment, although the media has has not really wanted to touch the story at all. So, Ben, I'm curious if you could give us your take on how this compares with what we consider this monumental American scandal, Watergate. What did we learn from John Durham and how does it uh, compare with something we consider to be such a such a powerful scandal and tragedy? Yeah, so let me start by saying what Durham actually alleges in this filing and says he can prove in a court of law, because I would suggest that this one single, the allegations in this one single document alone are to some extent on par with Watergate, but then you have to put it, like you said, in the context of the 30,000 other different angles associated with Russiagate slash Spygate, and that I think ought to be seen in an even broader context of a now five plus year campaign of a hyper politicized and weaponized national security intelligence and law enforcement apparatus to use every power and then extra legal powers to pursue dissenters, wrong thinkers in this country, of course, colluding in that effort with a corporate media that is the communications arm, the ideological warfare arm, I would suggest, of our deep administrative state and their other adjuncts and allies in big tech and beyond. So the first thing I'd say is that the assault on Trump via Russiagate slash Spygate was the tip of the spear that represented an assault, a proxy battle against tens of millions of Americans so that it starts with Trump and then it goes to a podcaster and then it goes to the parents protesting at a National School Board Association meeting. So That's the context, I think, that has to be laid out for Russiagate slash Spygate. Now, in this Durham filing uh, last Friday, what he alleged were a couple major things. The first being that the Clinton campaign and others that worked with the Clinton campaign essentially went about hacking information, DNS data, and, and mined for other data from Trump Tower, Uh, Trump's Central Park West apartment building and the executive office of the president, as well as a healthcare company for that matter. And according to a counter, a response from Sussman's legal counsel, Michael Sussman being a Clinton campaign lawyer who's been indicted uh, for essentially lying and misleading the FBI, among other officials, among other agencies, he claims that, well, Durham was intentionally misleading because he implied 
that they were spying on the Trump White House. So technically, assuming that Sussman's counsel is being honest here, essentially what they're admitting is that, well, they were hacking data from the office of the Obama administration. So we have the Clinton campaign hacking the Obama White House to try to go after the incoming Trump White House. And then the second part of the story that's really relevant here, beyond the fact that, of course, they were mining non-public information and using a contract between this tech company and the federal government to access all of this data, which the Clinton campaign was then using for its own ends to try to smear Trump, is that Sussman then, it appears, took, relied upon some of this information and presented it to an unnamed agency in the filing, which we pretty much know to be the CIA, took information that was gleaned from this effort to mine data from the White House and elsewhere and presented to the CIA to try to spark further investigation into Trump Russia. And this is one single effort of a whole slew of efforts by the Clinton campaign and its allies from the creation of the Steele dossier and the leaking of this Alpha Bank Trump Tower story to let a million poisonous flowers bloom of different aspects of potential Trump-Russia collusion, feed it to like-minded media figures who obviously had a vested interest in trying to destroy Trump, feed it to all manner of federal officials at the State Department, the CIA, the FBI, the DOJ, and beyond, and then create a sort of circularity between all of them that I think clearly existed, where you could have the government being fed some of this information, them feeding it to a like-minded journalist or another party feeding it to a like-minded journalist, and then use articles written about those implicated to try to justify spying on them as a wedge into the campaign. And it's very convoluted and complex because there are all these parties involved with it. But I think the simple point to be made is that this was an effort, a joint effort between the Clinton campaign the national security, intelligence, and law enforcement apparatus, and the media to try to undermine and bring down a president. And even though they did not do so within the four years, they did absolutely beyond destroying lives, chilling, intimidating people, doing countless damage, incalculable damage to liberty, justice, confidence in our system, and the individuals who were targeted. They certainly undermined the ability, hampered the ability, hamstrung the ability of the president to effectuate his agenda. And let's point out one more irony in that one of the things the president clearly wanted to do, if you look back at the public record, is to try to cultivate a relationship where it, where it made sense in our national interest with Russia, in no small part to split Russia off from China. Trump was tougher on Russia than his predecessor or his successor, infinitely so. But nevertheless, he wanted to split Russia from China. Instead, today we see Russia and China closer than they've ever been, probably, certainly since the end of the Cold War. And that's in no small part because of the people who are most hysterical about Russia today, the Russia collusionistas. It was a that was a really helpful overview, and I want to pick at one uh, one point you made, which is one of the strangest things from the the filing, and you got into it a bit, but 
I just have to, I mean, I, I can't possibly follow this with the, the level of granularity that, that you have and that Molly and Sean have. Um, it's, it's very convoluted and hard to follow, partially because of what you said, that it's circular and it was intentionally circular. Um, you need to get the articles about, you know, the, the FBI pot potentially investigating something um, to be written in order to make it serious and to just sort of manufacture this reality, uh, dare I say manufacture consent. Um, so Ben, it is insane. This is the part of it that is is truly just mind-boggling to me. There was a tech company that apparently had a pre-existing contract to do uh, cybersecurity work for the Obama White House that Clinton operatives weaponized to to spy. Am I sort of getting that correct? Because it seems insane. Yeah, you are getting that correct. This contract, it appears according to, I think, this counter filing by uh, Sussman Council, um, uh, of course, and also representing this tech executive effectively, uh, basically says that the contract started around 2014. And there were other researchers as well beyond this contractor. There were also these Georgia State researchers, and I think Judicial Watch has unearthed some documentation around what they were doing and a, a team of others who, according to prior Durham filings, clearly had it in for Trump and were searching for dirt on him. And the way that this arrangement, it seems like worked, and I'm sure that this was by design, is that this tech executive, Rodney Jaffe is the individual's name, who was responsible for getting this contract with the government, was a separate client of Clinton campaign counsel, Michael Sussman. But clearly, and according to the documents that Durham has put together, the information gleaned by this tech executive was used by the Clinton campaign. They were working hand in hand uh, in terms of this effort to find dirt on Trump and then spread it throughout the media. Uh, also worth pausing to note here, of course, that the National Security Advisor of the United States, it appears, was knee deep in this. Uh, which is a remarkable thing, is never questioned about it by the press. I think Jen Psaki has maybe taken one or two questions about this during the entire duration of the Biden presidency. But Jake Sullivan, he's characterized as being uh, a senior foreign policy advisor to the Clinton campaign, but there's ample reporting out there to suggest that he was her key advisor, a key advisor, if not the key advisor on the campaign. And one of the things Sullivan did, and it's it's captured in a tweet and captured in Hillary Clinton tweets, is spread this allegation about the Trump Tower, Alpha Bank, you know, Russian Bank ties, nefarious communications between these these servers. Sullivan himself has has claimed and and in testimony, sworn testimony, that he was basically unaware of the the broader effort to create things like the Steele dossier and other uh, dirt investigating efforts and the spreading of that dirt throughout the media and the government. And basically said, you know, I didn't really know what Mark Elias and his partner, the DNC slash Clinton campaign lawyers were working on, et cetera. It doesn't really pass the smell test when you look at what he was hawking in the run-up to the election about Trump-Russia collusion and particularly if he was such a senior member of the Clinton campaign. And so it may be that he perjured himself. Now we'll see if Durham actually ever gets to that point. Um, for for my, my vantage point, uh, I'm not at all optimistic about where this ends up in terms of 
going all the way in terms of pursuing justice and creating full transparency and, and accountability for every single person involved up to the senior most people involved. But that said, if nothing else, what Durham has started to lay out clearly are the outlines of a massive conspiracy of epic proportions. And for that, I, I'm thankful at least for his very slow efforts thus far. Yeah. So can we, if we back up a little bit, um, Ben, to people who, who might not follow this closely, because it, it is kind of a, a tough story to follow. Um, and we'll get to that in a second, because you just had a, a tweet that I think is uh, helpful to that respect about a particular New York Times writer. Uh, but uh, it, could you just explain who John Durham is and, and what the heck he's doing? You know, what is how did he get to the special counsel position and what is his task? What is the task ahead of him and the task that he's been tackling? Yeah, simply put, and it's remarkable that we're talking about this five plus years on from the start, from the origins of Russiagate, but Durham's job is essentially to get to the bottom of how did Russiagate begin and then ultimately what potential crimes were committed in connection with the origin of Russiagate slash Spygate and then the unfolding of that effort. And what I mean by the origins of Russiagate slash Spygate are the various investigations around uh, Russian attempts purportedly to collude with Trump and then the government's response to that. Now, as some have suggested in the Twitter sphere and beyond, you know, there's a question of, could Durham really push this all the way? Durham, we should say, is a, is a prosecutor, a U.S. attorney, um, with you know, who's probably most famous for uh, pursuing FBI officials in another context, namely around the, the Whitey Bulger case, I believe. Um, but setting all that aside for a moment, there's a question of, could he really get to all of the potential crimes and corruption associated with Russiagate slash Spygate when that in itself might call into question the, the origins of the Mueller special counsel and the operations of the Mueller special counsel and why the Mueller special counsel itself didn't look to the origins of Russiagate slash Spygate. So again, I mean, this is all very complex and convoluted because you have all of these different actors with all these different agendas. You know, we could talk about the Carter page and the FISA abuse. We can talk about Kevin Kleinsmith, the only person thus far to be sentenced in connection with anything associated with Russiagate slash Spygate on, on the government side, besides you know Trump-related officials. And he doctored an email to enable the surveillance of Carter Page. Uh, so I, I think one thing to point out just at a high level is one of the reasons you needed a Durham, a sort of at least putatively independent arbiter in this case, to look into the origins of the efforts of the Clinton campaign and government officials across a whole slew of agencies, uh, it's amazing to point out that QAnon Shaman has served more time collectively than any bad actor associated with Russiagate slash Spygate. Hmm. If that isn't a commentary on the nature of our system today, the injustice baked into our system, then I don't know what is. 
Well, also the recession. We can keep going. <laughs> we can just right. we can keep bringing examples up um, on on that front. So, Margot Cleveland, who's uh, also covered this closely for us, in addition to you, Ben, and of course Sean and Molly, um, she tweeted a passage from a New York Times article by Charlie Savage on Van- Valentine's Day, uh, which was shortly after we were learning about um, information in this filing, um, and <laughs> Savage wrote uh, just a really incredible passage that you describe as a watershed moment. This is from Charlie Savage. When John H. Durham, the Trump-era special counsel investigating the inquiry into Russia's 2016 election interference, filed a pretrial motion on Friday night, he slipped in a few extra sentences that set off a furor among right-wing outlets about purported spying on former President Donald J. Trump. He goes on to say, Upon close inspection, these narratives are often based on a misleading presentation of the facts or outright misinformation. They also tend to involve dense and obscure issues, so dissecting them requires asking readers to expend significant mental energy and time, raising the question of whether news outlets should even cover such claims. Ben, that is truly an incredible passage. It's basically an argument against covering taxes and the economy <laughs> and foreign affairs and war. Um, it is true, as we've already sort of confronted on, on this in this conversation alone, that this story is convoluted and it was intentionally convoluted. Um, and then that's sort of what Charlie Savage's argument is saying. That's our permission. You know, if, if politicians can be savvy enough to create convoluted um, scandals, then we don't have to cover them. Um, is, is that essentially what he's saying here? What's the significance of this uh, argument being presented in the New, York, the New York Times as you see it? Yeah, well, first, of course, you have the conservatives pounce framing here. So the story is being covered based upon the conservative reaction to a filing in a court of law. And of course, filings in court of law and opinions from judges are only sacrosanct when they take the position that the New York Times agrees with. So let's let's point that out up front. One initial reaction to this is, is Savage saying that the New York Times readers are idiots because... Mm -hmm. That if it's too dense and too complex to to merit coverage, that would seem to be potentially a slap in the face to their own readers. If that's not the right light in which to read it, I think it is just a remarkable self-indictment here that you're saying complex and dense issues might not merit coverage. What is the point of a media if not to break down complex and dense issues so that the layman can understand them? And every story associated with almost every issue of consequence has layers of complexity to it, oftentimes by design. But in this case, it's pretty simple. It's here's what the John Durham special counsel is pursuing, you know, the origins of Russiagate. Here is the, this, where this filing comes from, you know, an indictment among Michael Sussman, who's a Clinton campaign lawyer who's been charged with XYZ offenses associated with ginning up and then spreading to agencies Russian dirt. And then here, basically, all you have to say is here is what Durham is alleging in this statement. Here's why it's a bombshell allegation to say that a campaign was hacking 
mining for information from a White House, from Trump Tower, and from another building in New York and a healthcare company. And here's why this is so obviously shocking of a story. I mean, Clinton campaign hacked Obama White House, period, full stop. That's mm -hmm. a massive story. Set aside then, what is this private contractor doing working with the campaign while it has this contract and using this information? But well, yes, this that, that seems like a, a just a huge national security breach. And this this uh, technology company, it, it seems as though, I mean, they should be on our, our media should be on our government should be on red alert trying to figure out what the heck happened. Yeah. And, and to that point, the, the remarkable thing about this is a spokesman for the tech executive running that company, Rodney Jaffe, came out, and I'll have to find the exact quote, but basically said, you know, look, this is really creating a chill for cybersecurity companies out there who feel it's their duty to report these things, but not to a campaign, not to a political campaign. If you saw something that was untoward, perhaps based upon the parameters of the contract, you have to report it to you know, the CIA or the FBI or beyond. Even that, I think, is questionable in this case because they were clearly looking for information specifically around the incoming president of the United States during a transition, mind you, a frantic trans transition. Uh, all of those things are, are, are hugely significant points, but they can be explained to layman in layman's terms. And the New York Times has done a whole slew of complicated stories associated with Russiagate slash Bygate themselves and I've argued this for the media writ large, you know, the media, corporate media, which is so hysterical about what, what the DHS has called misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, the, the focus now from a counterterrorism perspective. The media is so eagle-eyed about that. Yet, as we've captured, Aaron Maté has done an exceptional job, particularly at Real Clear Investigations, of capturing this. The Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists at the Washington Post and New York Times who wrote all of these complicated bombshell after bombshell stories about Russiagate themselves were the most prolific and powerful purveyors of misinformation, malinformation, and disinformation around Russiagate slash Bygate. They've never handed back their awards. They have not engaged in substantial retractions. Matte put out a piece several months back on sort of the 10 biggest components of their reporting that ought to be retracted, they have not done so. So it's so dishonest for them to talk about mis, dis, and malinformation. And it's also dishonest, of course, to talk about not being able to report on the complexity of Russiagate slash Bygate when they were awarded for reporting on that complexity, but in a dishonest, disingenuous way that I would argue served as a communications arm for the deep state in this country. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, this idea and it, and it is completely true like this is really complicated and i know that it's it's difficult to report and those of you who follow it uh, as closely as you do i it's just a gargantuan task to even explain let alone um continue digging into and to lay out for readers but it's just like this he, he's arguing that because conservatives are in the weeds on this <laughs> It's like somehow a conspiracy. And to me, that seems to be revelatory about the uh, mindset and the prejudices that not even like far leftists, but just sort of centrist media types, um, Acela Corridor types have towards the right that like anything the right touches has to be um, bullshit because 
it's complicated and in the weeds. And it just, to me, seems like when they see something conservatives are on top of and, and on top of in a detailed and granular way, it's it's necessarily going to be some sort of conspiracy and we mustn't take it seriously. It, it Doesn't it seem like that's just their, their reflex? Yeah, it, it, if it's said by someone... Uh, who is a dissenter from ruling class orthodoxy, then it must be false and it can't be worth covering. And we should call these people disinformation spreaders and we should try to push big tech to censor them. And the government should pursue them like terrorists potentially. That is, that is the, the linkage that we see now. And, and I think you, you can put, you can bring up a million examples like this, like lab leak, for example, what, why was lab leak an unacceptable conspiracy theory when nothing changed prior to June 2021 or whenever administration officials then started saying, well, maybe it is a, you know, at least a plausible explanation for where the Chinese coronavirus came from. The, the intelligence and the reporting from government officials was there in January of 2021. And obviously there were there were aspects of of what transpired in Wuhan that we've known for months and months, dating back basically to the start of the spread. So. Once again, the simplest answer, the Occam's razor answer is Trump said it, Mike Pompeo said it, other people in the administration said it, thus it can't be true. And it must be conspiratorial and evil and bigoted and racist too. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I think th this is sort of on par with that in terms of, well, I, again, it kind of interestingly, this would, this would seem to indicate that conservatives are able to grapple with complex issues, but the New York Times as readers can't. So it's something of a cell phone for this journalist, Charlie Savage, but I, I, I'd almost put it on par with the kind of line that we had from Jim Rudenberg, you know, during, I think the summer of 2016 or thereafter talking about how presented with Donald Trump, we have to consider being oppositional here in a way that we've never been before. Yeah. And that was sort of the acceptance of Trump is different. So we have to treat him as fundamentally different from everyone else that we've ever covered in the past, not with our normal leftist bias, but actually trying to destroy the person. I think th there, there's an analog here. But then, of course, maybe the most important point that has to be addressed is the fact that so many of these media entities were in on Russiagate slash Spygate that almost the best thing that they can do is have a cop out like this and say, well, this is what conservatives are saying and we can't really cover it. And it's misinformation because it's a direct indictment of their own reporting. Yes. And that's an, I think that's such an important point in the case of Savage in particular, because uh, Margot's story on this for us at The Federalist gets into this and she revisits some of Savage's reporting from September um, that he did along with Adam Goldman. And Margot says that, quote, people familiar with the matter, she's she's quoting from the Times story, would provide details to the Times at the time back in September, months before the angle of the investigation became public, shows they knew it was huge and wanted the left friendly press to frame this as a legitimate national security issue as opposed to the targeting of Trump. So Savage is sort of defensive in this situation against conservative media, and he's using his perch to uh, color them as crazies so that it sort of protects his reputation because that's very very much on the line. His reputation and his reporting is what is on the line um, when we look back, and it, not just him, but the media's coverage of this, where they were credulous 
towards, uh, you know, government, bad actors in our government who we now know were weaponizing the press to undermine um, a presidential candidate and a president-elect, it's stunning because these are the things that in the, the era of Watergate, I mean, they made uh, they made that, they, they freaking made a movie about Woodward and Bernstein out of the book, right? Like they took all the president's men and they put, uh, you know, A-list actors into it and they still celebrate Bob Woodward to this day. Um, and this is the golden era of American journalism. And when you have something that is so much more severe but ideologically less convenient, not only are they not covering it with the zeal that they purport to hold so deeply in their hearts, but they're actually helping the bad actors. Yeah, and and I think the, the way that I've I've framed this out and written a couple of times is that the corporate media has really become the corporate media is supposed to be an adversary of the powerful. Instead, they've become an accomplice, an instrument of the powerful. You should be inherently distrustful of anything you hear from any government official, period, full stop, because that's your job. Your job is to assume that people who have power may well abuse that power, particularly when you're talking about a national security apparatus, which acts in secrecy and has more awesome powers than virtually any other part of a federal government that has a monopoly on power. You have to look at everything with skepticism. You have to scrutinize it and say, okay, what is the motive of this person in giving me this information? Is this information fact checkable? Who would be the right person to go to, to, to test it against? Who would be someone who would have a different view to provide more color and context so that I actually provide a reader with insight into it. But, but the media, it does not appear, looking at the evidence, operates in terms of wanting to unearth truth and present revelatory things to readers. It has an ideological agenda, and it clearly believes it to be in its self-interest, again, to be an accomplice of what I would term the ruling class rather than being an adversary to it. And look, you see this in a million different ways every single week. Obviously, the Joe Rogan example is maybe the biggest example of this because he's a threat to the regime because he dares to have people on his show who question it and just asks them genuinely interesting questions and has an open conversation that people can assess for themselves. And he gets 11 million viewers slash listeners per episode, which is X number of times the, the views of a cable news host. So he's a threat from that perspective. But it, it's the same thing when you have the intelligence apparatus and going out and talking about zero hedge. And who do they report it through? They report it through the AP. Uh, why? Because Zero Hedge gets readers and Zero Hedge has things on the site that, that challenge the official narrative. So you see this in just a million different ways every single week, this coordination between establishment, corporate media, and the authorities. And there's a self-interested and self-serving aspect to it. And then there's an ideological aspect to it. And both of them, for the defenders of our democracy, so-called, which is really defenders of their own power, uh, they undermine a free, independent, sovereign people when they are an instrument of the powerful rather than an adversary to it. It's amazing. Um, and I'm going to read again from, from Marco's story that it, she, she writes that Jaffe would then task researchers, researchers at Georgia Tech to quote, and this is from the filing, mine internet data to establish an inference and narrative tying then candidate Trump to Russia. 
Um, and Jaffe indicated, quote, that he was seeking to please certain VIPs, referring to individuals with the Clinton campaign and Sussman's law firm at the time, Perkins Coie. Um, we had Tom Fitton on a couple of months ago to basically explain Perkins, Perkins Coie to folks <laughs> and their um, involvement in all of this, and actually in, in other things as well. Um, and I'm going to read this quote from Cash Patel, who served as the lead investigator for uh, Devin Nunes when he was the House Intelligence Committee chairman. Uh, Cash said, it shows the filing, the motion shows that Hil- the Hillary Clinton campaign directly funded and orders its lo- ordered its lawyers at Perkins Coie to orchestrate a criminal enterprise to fabrica- fabricate a connection between President Trump and Russia. Ben, I want to get your thoughts on why it is that Michael Sussman, employed by this uh, very powerful firm, would have the brazenness, as Nunes has said, um, to go and and lie and to be involved in what I think is very clearly criminal activity. Um, what what expa- explains the brazenness of people who have uh, you know good success and, and reputations in Washington D.C., which doesn't really mean much having a good reputation in Washington D.C. <laughs> but what explains that brazenness? Why would they? Um, break the law and get involved in in such an amazing a scandal of such amazing scope um, when they had so much on the line. Yeah, well, I I can't look into Michael Sussman's heart, but what I think we can say is, first of all, this was an individual who I believe had worked for over a decade in the Department of Justice himself. And I believe particularly in a cybersecurity context. So presumably, if anyone would have thought he would have known where the lines were and what he had a duty to disclose, namely that when he approached various government agencies, he was doing so on behalf of the Clinton campaign, which he uh, did not disclose. And that's one of the reasons he's in hot water with the Durham Special Counsel. Uh, I think presumably maybe there's an arrogance associated with that or a confidence that you know that you're going to you're a member of the ruling class in good standing with a solid resume and experience. So, you know what the lines are. And even if you did happen across them, well, these are people that you worked with for over a decade. I think in terms of the the broader operation itself, again, looking to Occam's razor, and I'm not the first person to say this. I don't think they thought they would get caught mm-hmm. and, and and reasonably so, because look, we're talking about now six years on from, from 2016 when these operations started and we still are nowhere near to the bottom of how this all began and what were all, what were all the crimes committed in association with trying to cast Trump as a Russian agent and then trying to bring him down. Uh, so, you know, I think to some extent they were right. The, the, the statute of limitations on certain of the crimes that may have been committed has run out. Sussman, the only reason I think Sussman was indicted when he was is because the statute of limitations of five years was about to expire for his acts. So look, who has paid so far? Like I said, Kevin Kleinsmith is the a lower level individual relatively in this entire mess, was the only one thus far to be sentenced. And again, for doctoring a document, lying about Carter Page used to get a FISA warrant to spy on Carter Page, Uh, Carter Page, who, of course, ironically, had been a CIA and FBI asset, but it wasn't disclosed. Uh, Kevin Cosmith got less than a slap on the wrist and, and basically is, you know, his record is essentially expunged effectively in his professional career. So one person, one lower level person in this entire thing has paid any price so far. 
And it's essentially less than a slap on the wrist. So I think that shows you that many of these individuals were right in assuming that they would never face justice because they're all effectively on the same team. Uh, And I think that probably gave a confidence to engage in all sorts of acts that could get them in serious trouble were we to have a law enforcement system that actually adjudicated impartially and apolitically. And of course, we know it doesn't. And I think to to a point that I've made in the past about the Trump administration, arguably his greatest achievement was exposing the rot and corruption in all of these vital institutions, almost inadvertently in some cases, because of their absolute hatred of him and fear that he would upset their power, privilege, and prerogatives that caused them to lash out in all these sorts of disastrous ways for the Republic that expose that deep down, they don't, they do care about their institutions. They do not care about the constitution. Right. And then that leads us to the last question that I wanted to, to close on, um, which is, you know, were they right? <laughs> because you can have uh, Sussman get, you know, you can have these accusations fly and you can have them fly in court um, and, you know, the media will do its job and, and dutifully ignore them um, or downplay them in the same way that the media was used by people like Sussman um, and by people in the FBI, et cetera, to, uh, f- to frame a favorable narrative and to uh, downplay other parts of the narrative that were less favorable. Um, so it, are the, the Sussmans, uh, let's say, hypothetically, if they, they did believe that they could get away with it and that they could escape accountability, um, were they correct? Do we, what can we expect to see from uh, the duration of the Durham investigation? And Ben, do you think that anyone will actually really be held accountable? Hmm. Well, well, when it comes to Hillary Clinton, for example, I've long held that the only justice that she will ever face on this earth was is losing to Donald Trump in 2016. So, so let me let me state that upfront, and that might stick in her craw worse than if she ever faced uh, criminal prosecution. So setting that aside, I think Durham has clearly he's gone further than I think uh, the cynics, including myself, might have expe- ex- expected in the way of. The fact that he has clearly laid out the contours, the makings of a massive conspiracy, essentially starting from the bottom up in some cases, going for a Denchenko, who is an individual who was employed to dig up the dirt for the Steele dossier uh, in connection with Russiagate slash Bygate, and then Sussman, the top legal counsel next to Mark Elias, Perkins, former Perkins Cooley lawyer, Mark Elias, and sort of the lawfare boss of the Democrat Party. I would say, by the way, and he has testified in front of a Durham grand jury, to the extent there is prosecution effort against Mark Elias, I would say that would be huge in terms of signaling that there actually will be accountability because in terms of made men in our ruling class, there's almost no one higher than a Mark Elias type figure. Um, So where do I think this goes? The fact that Durham has laid out, again, the contours of this conspiracy between uh, Clinton campaign officials and media allies and and bringing information to various government agencies, uh, that does give me some hope. The fact that his budget, Durham's budget, was re-upped, something that I wrote about at the time, it was not clear necessarily that the DOJ was going to re-up it, but they did. Thankfully, we'll see if the special counsel continues to be funded. Durham has pledged that he will have a report regardless. 
So I think at a bare minimum, we should get something that character that captures at least a lot of the beginning of this massive conspiracy efforts. He has clearly laid out in these filings, some of which don't necessarily have a lot to do on their face with laying out the truth including the original indictment of Michael Sussman, the Danchenko indictment. And then this document that we're talking about in this episode from last week, which was really about a conflict of interest in the law firm representing Sussman. It's interesting that Durham is using all these documents as speaking documents to lay out these details. And it makes you wonder, is he running against a clock here or does he feel he needs to set out this information to then justify what is to come Later, the makings are there for a massive case. We have to see whether or not he executes it. And you know, I'll continue to look look upon it uh, very cynically and skeptically. But I would say that he has laid out clearly the greatest conspiracy, I believe, in American political history. And we'll just have to see if people are held accountable for it. But the one thing, I'll, one point I'll make on that is that thus far, he has sort of characterized the federal officials who themselves engaged in clear wrongdoing here in executing these operations to probe everyone and their mother associated with Trump, the way that they have been presented in these filings today, it has sort of been that they are the ones who were duped by media figures and by Clinton campaign officials. And that does give me pause. That makes me wonder whether or not he has the stones to pursue the people, his own colleagues in the DOJ and FBI and beyond. We'll see if he gets there. If so, it'd be, it'd be a heroic effort uh, but you don't often see one man take on the entire machine. Mm, it will be interesting, to be sure. Ben Weingarten, you can subscribe to his sub substack at weingarten.substack.com. He's a senior contributor at The Federalist and the deputy editor of Real Clear Investigations. Ben, thank you so much for bringing all of this wisdom to us today. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ben, for following what Charlie Savage doesn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. <laughs>